Anybody who heard me walk into the office this morning could have sworn that it was Danny Tanner from Full House, not Tanner Hoops from ESPN UP. Because I walk in here shouting, DJ, DJ, over and over again, shaking my head with disgust. But not because of DJ Tanner, because of Dustin Johnson. Because he was just a couple of strokes away from making my call come true. I said Thursday on the show, if you remember, I thought Dustin Johnson would win this weekend's PGA Championship at Bethpage. He opened at 20-1 to odds on Sunday morning ahead of the final round. Got within one stroke, erased, nearly erased, a seven-stroke deficit. Got within one, and despite numerous choking attempts by Brooks Kepka, DJ choked a little more. Here's that audio from Thursday. Let's go back and take a listen to that episode of the Sports Pen. He's just, he's good on this court. I actually picked Dustin Johnson. I, I thought, I still think he's got a shot. Yeah. This morning I was pretty confident, though, Dustin Johnson was going to win because he plays well on a course like this that plays long, especially as we get into Sunday. This is a course that challenges your stamina. You walk, what, like an average of five miles on a given championship course? This one is six, and it may not sound like a lot, but when you're a guy who's got that build, the strides and the athleticism for it, I think that's where that's really going to benefit Johnson by the end of the weekend. So if he's hanging around, look for him to maybe make a run Sunday. That's why I'm thinking Dustin Johnson will win this tournament, or at least if Kepka cools off, hopefully a little bit. I was that close to looking like the perfect guy to go to Vegas with. Nonetheless, Brooks Kepka wins back-to-back PGA championships. He now has four majors in the last two years. He's ranked number one in the world. 29 years old, he's got four majors. Dustin Johnson claims the runner-up Grand Slam. Second place at all four majors. So with that, let's do a little golf comparison to start the show. Brooks versus Tiger. Kepka's at his peak right now. Is he as good as Peak Tiger? Is he on Tiger Woods' level? The short answer is no. And Tiger is once again going to be in contention once they go back to Pebble Beach. Brooks Kepka, for as outstanding as he is, is not on Tiger's level. Not right now. Could he be someday? Maybe. Brooks has four major championships, all of them in the last two years. Extremely impressive. Tiger's got 15. So yeah, he's got time to catch him. But look at the comparison. Brooks is 29 years old with four titles. Tiger won his 14th when he was 32. So again, is Brooks capable of getting on Tiger's level? Yeah. He's off to about as good of a start as you can ask for. He's dominating. He's the best golfer in the world right now. But is there a debate between him and Tiger regarding who is the best of the modern era? There's not. There's just not. Tiger still is on a level by himself. Kepka could catch him. But will he be able to extend the run that he's on? Kepka's absolutely dominating right now. But how long is this run going to last? We've seen a few guys make decent runs, albeit short-lived ones. Nothing sustainable like Tiger. The way he dominated that sport for almost 20 years, that's unheard of in the modern era. Will Kepka be able to do that remains to be seen. But until he does, there is no debate between Kepka and Tiger who is the greatest golfer of the modern era. And I tell you what, if you don't believe me, take it straight from the horse's mouth. Here's Brooks Kepka following his win yesterday at Beth Page. It's always fun to get in Tiger's group. I enjoy the, the crowds. The crowds are definitely lively. Um, it's New York. You know they're going to be loud. and You want them on your side, that's for sure. It's something um, I've enjoyed every time i played with them. I enjoy them cheering for him. The, the energy that they bring, it makes it exciting. And especially if you're going to play good, that's a good time to play good. But if the narrative is they witness the passing of the torch... How do you feel about that? I mean, I've got 11 or 12 more to go before that happens. So again, did Brooks struggle down the stretch? Absolutely did. Left the door open for Dustin Johnson. DJ couldn't take advantage of it. I tell you what, let's seamlessly transition to the NHL playoffs because yesterday was an absolute butt-kicking. St. Louis took a 3-2 series lead. They blanked the Sharks 5-0 in San Jose. I tell you what, if the Blues do end up winning the Cup this year, Jaden Schwartz deserves a Conn Smythe trophy. He gets his second hat trick of these playoffs alone yesterday. Three goals yesterday. Jordan Bennington, 21 saves in net. Martin Jones with 35, albeit it came in a losing effort. Yesterday should have been the clincher for St. Louis. Think back to the hand pass game. The hand pass itself, maybe San Jose could have won the game anyway, had that not happened. But St. Louis, when they had a one-goal lead and San Jose pulled the goalie, 
St. Louis had a shot at an empty net. They shoot from halfway down the ice, rings off the pipe. Just like the Mighty Ducks movie, if that puck is a quarter inch to the side, it goes in. And we're already talking about a Bruins-Blues final. Either way, St. Louis is sitting pretty. They've been excellent on the road in these playoffs. They've arguably been the best road team in the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs this year. And they have the chance to close out this series at home. So I tell you what, I do want a St. Louis-Boston final. I think that'll be the most competitive. If San Jose makes it out of the West, they aren't beating Boston. They just aren't. Martin Jones is not consistent enough. He's not good enough right now. They're going to light him up. Tuka Rask has been Boston's best player. He's their Conn Smythe winner if they win the Cup. Logan Couture deserves it if San Jose somehow wins the Cup, but it's not going to happen. You put Martin Jones against Tuka Rask and say, beat this guy four times in a max of 15 days? It's not going to happen. It's a good try for San Jose. They put a good team together. Martin Jones just hasn't lived up to expectations. They'll get more consistency in net and try again. The other problem for San Jose, why their window is closing. Such an old team. Guys that are aging veterans. Don't have many years left in the league, let alone on their contract. Eric Carlson, top offensive defenseman in the NHL, signed for just a one-year deal. That's a must, re-signing him this offseason. This is going to be one of the most busy and important off-seasons for the San Jose front office. Cap space-wise, they're in pretty good shape. They've got the 11th most cap space in the NHL, so they're above average. Do you trust your front office to restructure the contracts of aging veterans who may be on their last legs? Do you re-sign the guys you have now? Do you go out and get a top-tier free agent? Well, they already did that this past offseason. 44% of Sharks players' salaries went to the defensive core alone, largely because of Eric Carlson. Just under 10% of that went to the netminders. And that's the weakest part of their team. You gotta upgrade a net. Martin Jones is just not being consistent enough for you to win. And if your goal is winning a Stanley Cup, which it is for every team, you need to have a good goalie. Grant Petoni, when he was on here a couple of weeks ago, you heard him say he believes Boston's going to win the Cup because they have the best goalie of anybody left. Martin Jones is fine to give you a deep postseason run, but he's not going to steal you a game. He's not going to be the reason that you win a Cup. If they win a cup, it's going to be because of Logan Couture and Joe Pavelski, Joe Thornton, Brett Burns, Eric Carlson. It's not going to be because Martin Jones played out of his mind. I do believe St. Louis is going to win the series. I think Boston still wins the cup. We're going to get two hot offenses and two outstanding goaltenders. Last thing before we go to break, I want to go to the NBA tonight on ESPN-UP. You can hear the ESPN radio broadcast of the Warriors and Blazers. Game four of that Western Conference final, Golden State leading the series three games to nothing. They have a chance to close it out tonight. If Portland does win tonight and they lose sometime later on this week, how do you assess this season for Portland? Coming into this series, Portland felt pretty good about themselves. They knew they weren't supposed to beat Golden State and that they probably wouldn't. They've already accomplished more than they thought they would. Accomplished something that no Portland team has done since the year 2000. And that's make a conference final. They probably thought, this is a moral victory no matter what. Just getting to this point is a step in the right direction. And it is, but this isn't a moral victory. Portland had Golden State on the ropes twice. 17 and 13 point halftime leads in games two and three of the series, and they blow them both. That's not a moral victory. That's not something you're proud of if you're a Portland fan. They had them. Game two, they had them. Game three, to a lesser extent, they had them. And it'd be another thing if Damian Lillard and CJ McCullum were having outstanding Western Conference final series, and they're not. They're not living up to the standard that they need to be. This was dubbed the series of the best backcourts in basketball, and one of them has flat out far and away dominated the other. I think this series is over. I think it ends tonight. Portland right now is not showing me anything that makes me think they're going to win. They're not giving their fans hope. They're not giving me any reason to speculate they're going to push this to a game five. They've had multiple double-digit halftime leads, and yet they haven't won a game this series. They haven't shown that they know how to close out games. A couple of nights ago, Lillard and McCullum combined to go scoreless over the last seven minutes. You're not going to beat Golden State doing that. So then the question becomes, 
do the Warriors need Kevin Durant to beat the Milwaukee Bucks? For me, the jury's still out on it, but I'm leaning toward they do. If Durant doesn't play in the finals against Milwaukee, he'll come back at some point. But until he does, Milwaukee's the favorite in my book. The length Durant provides, they need that going up against Giannis. So we're going to get to the Bucks. We're going to break down their game last night, look ahead in their series when Charlie's here in the third segment. But from a Warrior perspective, they'll get by Portland, largely because Portland is their own worst enemy. They'll do that without Kevin Durant. To beat Milwaukee, that's a whole other animal. I've got a guest that's going to join me on the other side of this break. We're going to talk poker next in Sports Pen on ESPN UP and the ESPN UP app. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN UP. Tanner Hoops with you, joined by Greg the Fossil Man Raymer, the 2004 World Series of Poker champion. Greg, appreciate you being here. How's it going? Going great, Tanner. I really appreciate you inviting me onto the show. Uh, I look forward to it. I think we're going to have a nice time here. Well, I'll tell you what, Greg, let's start with your background. You were raised in Lansing. How did you become involved in poker? Tell me about your background with the sport. Well, I mean, I live in lots of places, but when people ask me where I'm from, I say Michigan because I lived there from like half a year to ten and a half years of age. So those formative years, you know, when you develop your accent and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I've lived lots of places and been happy everywhere. Um, when I was going to uh, graduate school and then law school in Minnesota, I started making extra money as a card counter. The uh, tribal casinos were fairly new at that time, and it was uh, fairly easy to make money that way. So it was something I liked doing. I liked math. And you can set your own schedule, which was perfect since I was you know, so busy going to school. And then when I got my first job as a lawyer, I was in the Chicago area, and the blackjack games weren't as good, and I happened to find poker. And I had learned poker somewhere, I don't even remember, as a kid, because I knew the basic rules of you know games like seven-card stud and five-card draw and all that. But until I first played, like, real poker, you know, in, like, a public setting, I hadn't, you know, realized a lot of what was involved. And I just fell in love with the game and uh, got some books at a used bookstore and started teaching myself how to play poker and was just able to slowly work my way up from those really small games at the beginning to uh, fairly high-stakes games before winning the world championship in 04. Yeah, Greg, when did you start to realize that poker was something you had a talent for and you could really be successful with it? Well, I was never in a spot where I wanted to quit my job until I won that world championship, that world series of poker in, in Vegas in 04. I knew I could have quit my job and made a living at poker before that. But I had a you know wife and a kid and you know mortgage, and it was something where I probably wasn't going to really make more money. You know, you got to be realistic about these things. Even if you're one of the best players, it's not like you can assume you're going to like win a big tournament like the World Series and hit the big numbers like that and so it was like well I can still play lots of poker on the side and keep my regular job as a lawyer and make good dependable money and then just make extra money playing poker that's still what I tell people you know someone comes up to me and they're like oh I'm thinking of quitting my job or quitting school and just becoming a full-time poker player I always tell them not to do it you know, if it's that important, then just make sure you live someplace where you have access to some poker games, but keep that regular job or finish that degree and, and do it part-time on the side, because that way you can still play the game you love and still make money at it. And I was still a full-time lawyer when I won the world championship, so it's not like you have to do it full-time to, to be one of the better players. After I finally won then, it was like, okay, now I've just banked all this money. Um, online poker was still a big thing in the U.S. then, and, and I was being offered more money to represent an online poker site than I was being paid as an attorney. So then it was a real easy decision to quit lawyering and do full-time poker. Greg, was there a big break moment for you where you really felt you burst onto the national scene? I wasn't on the national scene until all of a sudden, all at once, you know, I win that one big tournament. And then uh, it didn't air for quite a while. I mean, 
you know, it takes them several months to go from filming it live to the edited show you would see on TV. So there was that interesting period where, like, the, the poker fans, the real diehard poker fans knew who I was, but the general public didn't because it wasn't airing yet on ESPN for several months. And uh, that had some funny interactions, you know, where maybe I was wearing a poker shirt, and people were like, oh, you like to play poker, huh? You any good? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm not bad. They're like, yeah, everyone thinks that. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, well, I hope he remembers this conversation in another month when uh, he starts seeing it on ESPN. Well, I tell you what, tell me about the main event back in 2004 when you were crowned world champion. Well, it's not that it's a whole lot different now. I mean, it's bigger, of course. Um, you know, Chris Moneymaker had won the year before, and that was the first time it was being shown on television in a significant way. And that was a big part of the poker boom. And then Chris himself, I give him a lot of credit. I mean, his personality and then his name, Chris Moneymaker, you know, just really notch things up, you know, they put they put things up another another a notch in the belt, so to speak, really moved it up that much, 10, 20% more than it would have been. And now the field has more than tripled in size between his win and my win. And it was 2,576 players, so I had to beat 2,575. And then the next year it more than doubled, and the year after that it got over 8,000, and then it started slowing down a little bit, but we still, just last year, you know, just almost a year ago, we had something like 7,700 people competing in the main event. So clearly, even if you are far and away the best player in the field, which no one is at this point in time, no one's that much better than everyone else, um, the chances of you winning that tournament are very small because you still have to beat thousands of other really good players. Talk with Greg Raymer, the Fossil Man, the 2004 World Series of Poker champion. Greg, tell me about your nickname. How'd you get the moniker, the Fossil Man? Well, at one point I was working as an attorney in San Diego, and my wife took me to this rock and mineral show because she wanted to look at some jewelry. And while we were there, I was checking out this one guy's booth. He was selling these, you know, fossils. And when you play poker, it's not a bad idea to have a card projector, something you put on top of your cards. It's a signal to the dealer that, hey, I do not intend to fold, so don't take these cards. Um, it helps protect them if someone else is folding and their cards were to hit yours. The weight of a card protector could make sure the cards don't mix and so that it's clear which two are yours. And I just bought one of these fossils. It was, I thought they were cool looking. I like that kind of stuff. And it wasn't that expensive. And then when I took it to the poker room, people were asking me, and when I would say, oh, yeah, this thing's like 300 million years old, they'd be like, wow, that must be worth a fortune. And I was like, hmm, okay. So I bought some more, and I just would have extra, and I'd start selling them to people and just make a little extra money while I was playing poker. Well, Greg, you mentioned that you've seen the landscape of poker change since you won the title in 2004. Tell me about some of the changes that you've seen. Well, basically, the skill level is just way, way higher. Um I am a much better poker player now than I was back in 2004. But relative to the field, I've lost a lot of ground just because so many other players have become so good. So if, if you were to go to the main event this year and if you had some you know, magic meter and you could measure everyone's poker skill and you found someone and you're like, okay, on average this guy would be like second or third worst player at most of the tables as we start this tournament, if you could put that guy back in time to 04, he'd be more like, you know, second or third best player at an average table. That's part of why it's so tough. Um, there were so many more bad players, so to speak, and I don't mean to put them down. I don't, you know, I don't want it to sound too negative, but I just mean, you know, people who just weren't that skilled, there was just a lot more of them back then. And so if you were one of the best players, every tournament you entered, you were likely to do reasonably well. So even if you didn't make the money, you probably were going to go deep and build up a big stack at some point, more often than not. Nowadays, you can be one of the best players and just 
you know, a little bit of bad luck and you're not even going to make it through day one. Well, Greg, looking back at 2012, you had a great run, the Heartland Tour. You've been teaching, started your own poker academy. Tell me about life away from the table. I uh, have been actually teaching poker almost since I won the main event. There used to be an, an entity called the World Series of Poker Academy, and, and that was just a couple of guys started that, but they had a deal with um, Caesars Entertainment, Lynn Harris Corporation, who owns the World Series of Poker logos, trademarks, to brand it that way. But we would offer live poker camps that would last all day or for two days in a row. And then uh, that kind of started not doing well. The uh, original owners weren't that good at managing things. And so then I started doing my own training seminars as well. In fact, I have one coming up in, uh, later this week in San Antonio. But it, it's harder and harder to do those because the better poker players out there know that it is worth putting in time and money, you know, investing in themselves and trying to improve their game. But those players are quite good, and they usually prefer something other than a live seminar at this point for improving their game. And then the bulk of the players, I mean, about 80 90% of all the players, you know, still have plenty of work to do and would benefit, and it would be a cost-effective way to, to improve their game to attend a live seminar like this. But the funny thing is, those are the players that are more likely to think they know it all, and therefore they're not that inclined to like buy a ticket and want to attend a live event. So it's kind of funny that the best players are the ones that are willing to put in time and money to improve, and the not-so-good players are the ones who think they know it all, so why would I put in any time and effort to get better when I there's nothing left for me to learn? I know it all. Greg, take me behind the scenes. How does someone establish and maintain a career in poker? Tell me about the personal aspects of being a professional poker player. Well, it's not very conducive to family life, to be honest. Um, if you're a tournament player, then you have to travel constantly. There really is no place you can live where there's just games in your, you know, big tournaments in your backyard constantly that you can sleep in your own bed at home every night. Um, even in places like Las Vegas and stuff that have lots and lots of poker rooms, they still don't have big tournaments constantly. And the small daily tournaments are not really ones where you can play those every day and necessarily make a good living at it because they're just not big enough. So now you'd have to travel constantly, and that's not obviously conducive to a great family lifestyle. If you play cash games, then yes, you know, you can just have one poker room, you know, one poker game potentially and make a living at that. But again, it's it's the kind of thing, the swings are significant. It's not like most jobs. Um, you know, most jobs, whether you have a good or a bad day at work, you get paid exactly the same. And even if you're someone like a salesman working only on commission, you know, you have a bad day, week, month, whatever, you don't make money. But when a poker player has a bad week, bad month, they not only don't make money, they lose money. And a lot of spouses aren't going to be very understanding about that. So it's not a good choice, really, if you want to also have you know, a great family life. Well, Greg, you recently became a published author. Tell me about your new book. Yeah, this is basically a strategy book. So it's not a, an autobiography or anything like that. You know, you're not going to have, you know, all these insights into my personal life and stuff, because to be honest, I'm pretty boring. Um, so I don't think a book like that would necessarily sell very well. And if it did, I'd have to make a lot of stuff up. <laughs> so this book is directed towards tournament strategy, because that's primarily what I do and what I'm most known for. So I hope that this book is going to be considered the Bible for poker tournament strategy once it is out there and widely disseminated and people are reading it. So it covers all aspects of tournament strategy, um, not just all the basics, but also all the specialties and stuff. So things like satellite tournaments and bounty tournaments and um, turbo tournaments and all the different tournament variations that exist, all the basic strategy. And, and I'm not the kind of guy who likes to teach like charts and stuff you know i don't want you to memorize something and like okay this is what you do every time in this situation because i don't think that's conducive to becoming a great player 
the way I like to learn and the way I like to teach is concepts. Here are the ideas. Here are the concepts. Here are the things you should be thinking about and taking into account because now you can fine-tune those decisions and make the better decision every time. If you're just trying to follow some kind of chart that says do this, do that, you know, that might improve your game if you're not at a high level already. But once you've memorized the chart, now that's it. You're stuck. You cannot go any further. And that's not good enough to be one of the best players. You need to be able to adapt to every little detail in the moment. Greg, last thing before I let you go, what do you have planned for the future? What are some ways that you want to stay involved in poker? Well, hopefully this will just be the first of a whole series of books. Um, I'm already starting to work on a book on Pot Limit Omaha, which is a, you know, instead of Texas Hold'em, which is the main game most people play, Pot Limit Omaha is kind of the new game, the, the one that uh, is becoming more popular out there and that there's still lots of misunderstanding. Um, to the extent people have gotten better and better at poker, mostly when I say that, I mean they become better at hold'em and especially no limit hold'em. Um, Omaha hasn't been as popular as long, so there's still a lot of learning for people. So hopefully when that book's done, that'll be something that'll help if that's what you want to do. Um, and I'll still be teaching. I do these seminars whenever I can book them. I do private lessons playing poker because I just I love the game. You know, again, if I was still working as a full-time lawyer, I would advise myself, don't quit that job. But obviously the situation's a little different after you win the world championship than if you're just someone who loves the game and plays it, you know, and would like to do more of it. Um, so while you probably should keep your job, no matter how good you are, if you win the you know main event or otherwise or start winning millions of dollars playing poker, now it's a little different. Now you could probably quit your job and do poker full-time if you want. Lansing's own Greg the Fossil Man Raymer, 2004 World Series of Poker champion. Really appreciate you taking the time. Love to have you back sometime. Yeah, I'd love to, Tanner. It was a great time. And, uh, you know, big shout-out to your to your audience since, you know, this is a Michigan audience, uh, and that is basically home to me. Uh was just there recently, actually, in Michigan. My daughter just graduated from the University of Michigan. Mm. And so we were up there for that. Uh, um, been like, what, almost two weeks ago. And uh, she's home with us now here in North Carolina. But uh, uh, there's a chance we'll be moving back to Michigan fairly soon. My wife would like to be closer to family, which she also grew up there. And so I might become a permanent resident of Michigan again here. Hey, we'd love to have you back. Congratulations to your daughter. Congratulations on all your success. Look forward to talking again soon. You got it, buddy. Thanks. Let's take a time out when we come back. The Wisconsin Sports Report Cheesehead Charlie segment next in the Sports Pen on ESPN UP and ESPN UPF. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app. The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP, Tanner Hoops with you. Charlie Bramer is going to join us here in just a moment, but first, your Sports Center update. The Minnesota Timberwolves have signed head coach Ryan Saunders to a multi-year deal. Saunders took over for Tom Thibodeau on an interim basis in January. Rafael Nadal beats Novak Djokovic 6-0, 4-6-6-1 to claim the Italian Open Championship. This marks Nadal's first championship of 2019. And finally... Several reports off the coast of Norway say that a beluga whale wearing a harness would rub itself against fishermen's boats in an apparent attempt to remove the harness. The Norwegian Marine Service was able to locate the whale and remove its harness. Upon inspection of the harness, officials discovered spy equipment manufactured in Russia. Authorities believe that the Russian Navy was using the whale as an underwater drone. How about that? Putin's getting a little more creative. Oh man, I gotta tell you, Tanner, don't get me into those conspiracy theories and, and the spying. Spying whales, defecting yep. to Norway. Exactly, we'll be here all day, we better move on to some sports. Charlie <laughs> Bramer is in the studio with us, as always, he's gonna give us the rundown on Wisconsin sports. There's been plenty going on here regarding Wisconsin sports. Uh, Milwaukee was able to get by Atlanta, got an extra inning win yesterday, Ben Gamble, and then of course the Bucks. Uh, let's start with the Brewers, though, as they are able to avoid Mike Soroka, who has been outstanding for Atlanta this year. He's pitching tonight against San Francisco. 
and they end up getting the win yesterday in 10 against a pretty upsurge Atlanta team. Yeah, um, Atlanta pitching has come along. Their bullpen has you know, been a weak point, as has been the case for a lot of teams, and I guess is usually the case for a lot of teams this time of year. Um, uh, but Mike Fultonavich came in with an ERA over eight, and mm-hmm. he's one of the better right-handed arms in the NL uh, that, that isn't really a big-time name. It was a first-time first All-Star last year. Um, the Brewers were able to, well, they won a game that he started. They didn't mm-hmm. technically beat him. Josh Hader finally picked up his first win um, after blowing, really blowing the game the day before. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, it was a tie game, but he gave up the game-winning home run. And, uh, yeah, they lost uh, lost one in extra innings to the Braves and then were able to take one in extra. So that series was really close. Two good teams that are going to be right there at the end of the season. And I really liked what I saw on the road trip. Uh, they were 11-5 and five in the last little over two weeks. So overall playing really good baseball right now. Yeah, they got Ben Gamble. He hit the winner yesterday to take it in extras. He's a guy that seems like he is really driven to try and make a name for himself in that Brewer outfield between Braun, Kane, Yelich, some big names. There's not a lot of space and things like that. That'll get you some PT. Yeah, definitely. And and a guy like Ben Gamble, um, being a lefty bat, um, that so far has hit lefty pitching decently well um he'll be in there uh ahead of left-handers like uh eric thames or travis shaw so that can get him uh extra at bats being versatile against left-handed pitching um and and really being able to play all three outfield spots uh with a bit of a plus arm average to plus speed with a plus arm um he he's looked really good it was really exciting to see the debut of keston here this mm-hmm. last week it started off really hot um, then and then he cooled right down. It hasn't been like uh, and like many of the debuts that we've seen from Braves players. Speaking of the Braves, mm-hmm. um, especially this last week, Austin Riley yeah. getting close to setting records with his first week in the big leagues. Some some really fun stuff, fun player to watch. But Keston here came back. Um, he struck out his first four at bats with the bases loaded. He struck out all four times. He had some real opportunities to drive in runners. And really, the Brewers have, as a team have been struggling with runners in scoring position lately. Uh, a few weeks ago, they were batting over 300 with runners in scoring position. Now they're down into the 270s. Mm. That is not a stat you want to see plummeting. No. Um, it's kind of one of those situations where it's really good. They got guys in run- scoring position. Um, they did a get, they did a pretty good job against the Phillies, but really against the Braves, there was a lot, a lot of runners left on base yesterday. I don't believe the Braves even had a runner in scoring position. They scored both their runs off of solo home runs. So Brewers pitching, aside from giving up nine earned runs in one inning, just a blowout inning against the Braves, um, they've been pitching to under a two ERA for, I think, the last 13 or 14 days. Um, and, and just to get back to Keston here, he finally hit his, his first major league home run yesterday. So that was exciting to see. Well, the Brewers are now 28-21. and 21. They get an off day today. They're within a game and a half of the Cubs, who seem like they're starting to come back to earth. The Cubs are starting to level out a little bit. The bottom just seems to have fallen out in St. Louis the last couple of weeks. They're 3-7 and seven in their last 10. They're one game over 500, and they dropped a fourth in the division. I don't know if Pittsburgh's coming on strong or they're starting to make a little noise. They have won seven of their last 10, so they're starting to figure things out. At least Josh Bell is. Yeah. And then Cincinnati. Cincinnati's playing better baseball. Not really enough to want to be a contender, but they're playing better. Cincinnati is doing the classic Cincinnati thing, and and it's exactly what you can't do. They're burying, they buried themselves early, um, but the problem is they're not like last year's Dodgers, where they can just oh we're we're gonna go, you know, thirteen and two, or we're gonna go you know on a fourteen and one run here. Mm-hmm. Um, but their pitching has been solid enough that if they would have just had average offense, they could easily be a 500 team. And looking at them offensively and what they were able to produce last year, you know, there's been some guys for Milwaukee that have been batting slowly. Guys like Bryce Harper through, around the league have started off slowly, kind of like Paul Goldschmidt did last year. But really, 
overall, there's been guys that have really been struggling. I don't think I don't think any of them, even even Chris Davis has has come out of his slump. Joey Votto mm-hmm. was swinging a cool bat. Obviously, they they could still come back and maybe get something like a wild card down the road. That would really be a turnaround. Um, but I hope they don't decide to get hot now because the Brewers have a two-game series against them coming up Tuesday and Wednesday. There you go. You look at this division. I don't know what it is about St. Louis, but I don't know why the bottom's just fallen out for them. You look at their bullpen, solid bullpen. You know, guys get hit sometimes. That happens. You look at their offense, Guys like a guy like Marcelo Zuna, he, he's right back to where, where what they were looking for out of him when they got him. Um, I guess I guess – you know, Paul DeYoung, he'll be an all-star, but I guess there's just not enough consistency. You know, the numbers, when you look at the numbers for the Cardinals, they're, they're kind of there. At least they were about a week ago. Obviously, like you said, they've, they've really had a bad last week or two, but it's, it's just a matter of consistency for them, I think. And, and yeah, right now the Pirates, Josh Bell is just essentially yeah. carrying them to being about the hottest team in the National League over the last week. And, of course, the Brewers haven't played them all year, and now here they come up in the next few weeks always having to play these teams when they're hot, I guess. Well, I tell you what, let's switch over to basketball. The Bucks go to double overtime last night but fall to the Raptors 118-112. to George Hill led the way with 24 points for Milwaukee. It was a tough night offensively for Giannis. He was held to 12 points, and it's weird that we hold a player to that standard where a double-double, 12 points, 23 boards, is an off game for him, but he set the bar that high for himself. What was Giannis struggling with last night? What attributed to his struggles? Was it something that Toronto has figured out defensively, or was it just one of those nights? I really think it was just one of those nights. He just he he just did not seem to have it. You could even see it in his passing, um, in his turnovers. It's weird to say he seemed to step slow, and, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like a step slow physically. He just seemed kind of behind the game mentally almost. And 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 after he fouled out and was watching the game, you could really see his reaction sitting on the bench. Just I feel like it, his facial expressions were just, you know, louder than words. That you could really see how disappointed he was in his play that game. And was once he was off the court, was seeing things that he could have probably done differently. Um, and and then other guys like like Ersan Ilyasova and guys that had stepped up previously. Pat Connaughton hit some huge shots, and I don't know when he's going to get his due in minutes, but when he is out there, his plus-minuses are ridiculous. Um, it's not like Toronto had a great offensive day yesterday. No. The Bucks just needed a few players to step up, and really nobody could do it. And and Kawhi Leonard willed, willed Toronto to win, no. and he is really looking like he's beat up and tired and they play it's it's coming right up i believe they play tomorrow so it's going to be interesting to see i i really hope that in game four sent that double overtime win you know it, it was obviously really good for toronto that they could pick that up but but even though the bucks lost i think dragging it out the way they did it that that's really going to help them win game four especially Toronto's inability to close it out in the first overtime, even at the end of regulation. Pascal Siakam bricks two free throws that could have put him up four. Milwaukee goes down and ties the game. And then with under three seconds to play, what does Nick Nurse draw up? He draws up a 30-footer for a guy who just bricked two free throws, and the game goes to overtime. They just don't have that clutch gene other than Kawhi Leonard, of course. Right. It it was kind of, you know, Norman Powell came off the bench he was finally a guy that stepped up. We knew that Toronto was going to need somebody off their bench to step up. Is it going to be Van Vliet? Is it going to be Powell? Who, who is it going to be? Or or is Siakam going to have a 35-point night? Well, Siakam did have a decent night before the last five minutes of the fourth quarter in overtime, but it was Norman Powell who really came out. He played well, but he didn't play effective on the defensive end in fouling himself out. I think if he would have been in the game, it would have helped him finish finish it off earlier potentially in that first overtime but really the guys who've been clutch for the bucks when they've needed big shots it's been george hill it's been pat Connaughton. it's 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 just kind of you know i wonder when like i said when is Connaughton going to get his due in these minutes if the bucks win a championship he should get two rings well i tell you what the bucks to win a championship there are some things that i think first of all the Bucks are going to be just fine. We knew Toronto would probably get a game or two because they're a good team, but the Bucks are going to be just fine. They're going to advance beyond this series. 
to play Golden State, there's a few things that have to go right for each of them. Golden State doesn't need Kevin Durant to get by Portland. I think they do need Kevin Durant to beat Milwaukee. They need someone with that kind of length to match up against Giannis and the stretches that Milwaukee's going to bring to the table. For Milwaukee... They have to learn to quit getting off to poor starts. They have to start well this time because you can come back against Boston and Toronto and even Detroit. I think they trailed a couple times in the series. You can come back against those teams, but if you dig yourself a hole against Golden State, that's an entirely different animal. And last night, that was another problem for Milwaukee. They turned the ball over six times in the first quarter and gave Toronto 10 extra points off turnovers in one quarter. Yeah, and I believe they had turned the ball over a total of six times all of Game 2. Mm-hmm. So that just goes to show, and, and in Game 2, they got off to that really fast start. Um, a team like Milwaukee, when they can get off to a fast start, it just, it just the confidence level for the rest of the game is shooting. They're such a hard team to come back against. They show that in Game 2. I really like the way you put that. You know, they, they have been playing from behind a lot in these playoffs. That was only their second loss in this whole uh, the whole playoff stretch so far. That was only their second loss yesterday, which, that's great, you know. What, what are they, 10-2 and two now in the playoffs? That's fantastic. But it seems like they've lost a lot more than two games just because my overall stress level, they've been <laughs> down double digit in several games. They were down double digits, I believe, two separate games against Detroit. Mm-hmm. So, so even though they've only lost twice, it seems like they've lost more, um, which obviously that's kind of a weird, weird thing to say, I guess. But it, it, it just goes all to show with what you were saying about how they need to start off strong. They can't be constantly playing from behind. Guys like Eric Bledsoe, they got to come out and attack the hoop early. And and it's not going to work. Like you said, it is not going to work against Golden State. They have to come out and get quality shots early. And Eric Bledsoe can't be shooting threes. He can't be playing his mid-range game. He's looking like Phoenix Eric Bledsoe right now. And we need him to be really, really good February Eric Bledsoe like he was this year carrying the Bucks down the stretch um, to win that number one overall seed in the playoffs. And and um, he just hasn't been there. It, his defense is there. He's playing really hard. Um, but but he has not been there offensively. They need him to drive and get to the hoop um, if, if they're going to be effective against Golden State. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to make a call for tomorrow night's Game 4. I was right when I said that Game 2 was going to be a Milwaukee blowout. I think Game 4 is more the same. I think Milwaukee's going to blow them out tomorrow night, take a 3-1 series lead, send it back to Milwaukee. Giannis didn't have a great game That's not going to happen back-to-back. He's going to continue to be honest, be the MVP caliber player he is. On the other side, Norman Powell, he's not going to do what he did last night again, and they needed that. Kawhi Leonard, 36 points, a career-high 52 minutes, a playoff career-high. I mean, you're not going to get a whole lot better than what you got from Toronto last night. You could say that was their best punch, Game 3, and Milwaukee nearly survived it. They very well could have survived it, took them to double overtime, I just see the upside as being so much better for Milwaukee that I don't think tomorrow night's Game 4 will be close. And I felt the exact same way. I I loved how you phrased that. Milwaukee was standing toe-to-toe with them, and and I felt like Milwaukee was just playing a garbage game. Um, There was definitely some settling for shots that... When they make them, it's fine. But but in a game like that, you know, get to the hoop, guys. Let's go, Eric Blood. So that that's his game is getting to the hoop. Um, you know, guys like Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal have been hitting on that with Eric Blood. So he's got to get to the hoop. That's his game. Um, but but that that was really telling. How you know, like you said, there are guys that could play better for Toronto, and you'd mm-hmm. expect them to play better, like like uh, Green and Van Vliet. But but w- with the way the Bucks played their defense. You know, that 36 out of Kawhi and, and him being hurt now, how bad is that um, going to linger? And it, just his overall fatigue. I think the Bucks should really be thanking Philadelphia for how they were able to drag that series out. And they really put it to Toronto. And, and Toronto came in apparently kind of limping into this series. And, and the fatigue level has seemed to have been affecting them this whole series. And I think it will continue to wear down Toronto and, and like you said really help Milwaukee get a blowout win in this next game that would be nice I know Gasol played well last night Toronto's Gasol but do you think they're regretting trading Valanciunas now I feel like he would have better games more consistently than Gasol and I know he was a big part of why they got to where they were but at the same point against a team like Milwaukee 
he's not nearly as good of a guy to match up with as Valanchunas. Yes. Well, the last time the Bucks faced the Raptors in the playoffs, Valanchunas, he always played well against the Bucks. It's kind of strange. The more prototypical centers have been able to have some success against the Bucks, Bucks particularly when it comes to defending the rim against Milwaukee. Um, and, and last week I mentioned how the Curry brothers were playing. It's the first time brothers had ever matched up in a conference finals in, the, in NBA history. Well, it didn't even occur to me that Mark and Paul Gasol, you know, Paul playing for the Bucks. obviously he'll be out for the remainder of the year. But, I mean, that's technically a matchup, right? Yeah, just so, put him on the court just to, for 30 seconds. Right, yeah, it's a first for both. It's kind of just one of them funny things where it's a, it's a first time and, and it's happening in each conference. A set of brothers playing, well, on the teams that are competing against each other in each conference finally. You have the Currys in the West, the Gasols in the East, but the Gasols don't count because one of them is injured. Yep, and, and thank you for clearing that up. You correctly phrased that. That's, that's good. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> well, I tell you what, uh, anything before we let you go? You watched Wisconsin softball this weekend, huh? I did not get into Wisconsin softball this weekend, and I feel pretty bad because those girls play really good ball, and, and it is fun to watch. I just get sucked into what's going on with the Bucks and Brewers right now. They walked off Notre Dame. Oh, there you go. Notre Dame season that way, but I wasn't too mad. They weren't going to get by Oklahoma. Oklahoma won that regional. And and just with uh, recognition in in women's softball, you'd yeah even even without watching, you just hear the the school name Oklahoma, and you go yeah they're, that they're probably going to win. Well, I tell you what, I've got some softball analysis coming up. We'll take a look at that more next in the sports pen on ESPN UP and ESPN UP app. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, check it out on demand with our free mobile app. You can get it from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just search up ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you as we wind down the workday on this Monday afternoon. And tell you what, if you like parody, you probably don't like this year's NCAA softball tournament. So far, all the teams that hosted a regional won it, and they're on to the Super Regionals. I say so far because due to weather, we're still waiting on the result of the Michigan Wolverines, the one that everyone up here is going to care about. They're taking on James Madison, Michigan, the 15th seed nationally, hosting a regional, and James Madison forcing a winner-take-all game that is in progress. But if Michigan wins, that means the top 16 national seeds are all going to move on to the Super Regionals. Here are the teams that have already punched their ticket to the Super Regionals. Oklahoma's ranked number one, number two UCLA, number three Washington, number four Florida State, Florida's number five, Arizona six, Minnesota seven, Alabama eight, Texas nine, LSU ten, Ole Miss eleven, Tennessee twelve, Oklahoma State thirteen, Kentucky fourteen, and Northwestern sixteen again, with number 15 Michigan results still pending. As it stands right now, the top 16 seeds nationally have gone to combine 50 and 8 in this postseason. And you might think that's pure dominance, unlike anything we've ever heard of. But that's not the case. The combined 8 losses between the top national seeds is already more than 2017 and 2018 put together. So again, if you like parity, probably don't like college softball that much. Especially considering this is about as much parity as you'll get in this stage. Again, everybody who hosted a regional survived, but they did it by the skin of their teeth. It's a double elimination format. There were seven winner-take-all games yesterday. There's an eighth today. So half of the regionals were decided by one game in a double elimination tournament where each team had one loss, but the team who hosted won every one of them. Again, Michigan, James Madison, and Ann Arbor still pending. By the way, James Madison forced a winner-take-all game by beating Michigan earlier today, a game that was originally scheduled for yesterday but rained out. That snaps Michigan's 16-game winning streak, which was tied with Florida State for the longest in the nation. So here's your stat of the day. You'll like this if you're a fan of the long ball. You like home runs. Yesterday, Arizona hit four home runs to beat Auburn. They become the third team this year to reach the 100 home run threshold. No team hit 100 home runs in a single season since 2016 when Louisiana did it. This year, three teams have done it. Florida State with a country best 104. Oklahoma won behind them. And now Arizona. And three of the four Arizona home runs yesterday came off the bat of one player. 
Jessie Harper tied a school record for most home runs in an NCAA tournament game. She's just the fifth player in NCAA softball history to hit three home runs or more in a tournament game. But I tell you what, it wasn't just a hitter showcase. There was some great pitching on display, too. Gabby Plain of the University of Washington struck out 10 and allowed just one base runner against Mississippi State as she helps the Huskies move on with her fourth career no-hitter, her third of this season. So now let's break it down by conference, and the SEC continues to run the show when it comes to college softball. They went 29-16 and 16 during regional play. Their 29 wins far and away the most. They also are sending six teams on to the Super Regionals. So six of the final 16 teams are from the SEC. The Big 12, however, has the best winning percentage at 765. Big 12 teams went 13-4 and four in regional play. The Big 12 is sending three on to the Super Regionals. The Pac-12 is sending three as well. The Big 10 has a chance to join that group. And let me tell you this, the Big Ten has struggled in softball over the last few years. Northwestern already punching their ticket as the Evanston Regional Champions. They're the first Big Ten team to advance to the Super Regionals since 2016. The Big Ten hasn't had three teams move on to the Supers since 2014. They have a chance to do that as early as today. Minnesota already beat Georgia 8-1 to to win their regional. Michigan, if they can close out James Madison, will move on as well. And the Big Ten could have three teams in the Super Regional for the first time in five years. Well, I tell you what, that's going to be something you're going to want to keep an eye on. We're certainly going to do that here at ESPN-UP. Plus, you've got Conference Championship Week for college baseball. That's going to be a lot of fun, seeing the conference tournaments go down as they get set for the postseason. Don't try to keep up with all of it yourself. That's what we're here for. We got you. We're going to break it all down for you over the course of the next week. Before we sign off, let's take a look at the MLB scoreboard for tonight. Both the Brewers and the Tigers are off today. The Red Sox pound the Blue Jays 12-2 north of the border earlier this afternoon. Oakland visits Cleveland tonight. Brett Anderson is opposed by Carlos Carrasco, 6-10 start. The Yankees visit the Orioles at 7:05. J.A. Happ takes on Andrew Kashner, 7-10 start for the Nationals and Mets. Patrick Corbin against Wilmer Fott, 8:05 start for the Mariners and Rangers. Mike Leake opposed by Mike Miner. Another 8:05 game. The Phillies visit the Cubs. Jake Arrieta takes on Yu Darvish. 8:10 White Sox at Astros. Brad Peacock takes on Ryan Burr. 9:45 start for the Braves and the Giants. Mike Soroka and his .98 ERA takes on Andrew Suarez. 10:07 start for the Twins and the Angels. Angels, Jake Odorizzi, and Taylor Cole. Then at 10-10, the Diamondbacks visit the Padres. Luke Weaver is opposed by Chris Paddock. That should do it for today's show. Don't forget tonight here on ESPN-UP, you can hear live coverage of Game 4 of the Western Conference Finals. Golden State visiting Portland. The Warriors with a chance to close it out and move on to the NBA Finals again. Five straight years. One game away from doing it. I think they're going to do it tonight. Find out for yourself this evening. Pre-game coverage begins at 8.30. Tip-off set for 9 o'clock here on the East Coast. Thanks again for joining me and letting me be a part of your Monday afternoon. I'm back on tomorrow, same time and place. And again, you want to go back and hear this episode, missed your favorite part? Check it out on demand with our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Signing off from the ESPN-UP WZAM studios. Until tomorrow, I'm Tanner Hoops. Thanks for listening to ESPN-UP.